What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch. I'm Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com and The Advocate. Here in New Orleans, uh, Tuesday morning, a crisp fall day. And by crisp fall day, I mean like 75 degrees, and you're only sweating a little bit. Uh, like a pseudo crisp fall day. Uh, here today with Jeff Nowak. Hey, y'all. And my guy from Denver, uh, Nuggets beat writer for DNVR, Harrison Lind. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me on. It is a, um, I'd say it's a crisp 64 in Denver. I'd say crisp is a, an, an apt description of the weather in Denver right now, turning into fall. Well, I will say you really, you took a left turn in your career by not becoming a weatherman. Uh, so I, I do trust your your instinct on uh, on weather uh, conditions. <laughs> yeah, it, it was my calling. It was my- <laughs> Yeah, you've got like the vest game going, which I'm jealous. That's how that's how you know it's really fall. I mean, if you tried to, if you tried to wear the vest or the flannel here today, it would be too hot. So, it's not it's not really fall. Yeah, if you live in Denver and you don't own a Patagonia, you're you might be banished from the city. There are like a million different ways New Orleans and Denver are are way different cities, and one of them is that. I, I have not seen, like, one person in New Orleans wearing a Patagonia. I mean, maybe here yeah. and there. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you might not be allowed within uh, the Denver city limits with, with that statement, Jeff. <laughs> well, do you all know what a seersucker is? Because uh, that's the, that's uh, the uh, I, I, southern I could, equivalent, probably. <laughs> I, I could pick a seersucker out of a lineup. <laughs> I think I could. Yeah, that's that's the difference right there. Uh, yeah, people in New Orleans think of if they know what Patagonia is, they think it's the mountain range, not the clothing brand. <laughs> I would have guessed it was a flower. Yeah, well, that, that's where we are. That's where we are. One of the many differences. Um, today, I wanted to talk to you guys about coaching. Um, the Pelicans are in a really interesting spot right now. They've been linked to a number of names. Uh, Ty Lue, Kenny Atkinson, Jason Kidd, most recently Doc Rivers. Um, my kind of read on the situation is that I think Ty Lue is the guy they most covet, but it's looking like a little bit of a long shot at this point. Um, I want to get into all of that from a Pelicans perspective. Um, but before we did that, I wanted to ask you, Harrison, kind of about you know Michael Malone's journey in Denver over, what is it, five seasons now? Yeah, five seasons. So I guess how much of the Nuggets rise in general? I mean, they made the Western Conference semifinals last year. Uh, they just made the Western Conference finals. How much of this can we attribute to the King's stupidity? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a great deal. Um, look, in the NBA, I think it's always about the players first, and the players deserve most of the credit. But the coach has to be like a key shepherd in a rise of a team for sure. And I think if you look at the early Nuggets days and especially just this Western Conference finals run, a lot of it has to be attributed to Michael Malone because if you're a coach, um, coaching a young team especially, so much of it has to be about buy-in. And if you're coaching a veteran team as well, but – the fact that the Nuggets were like so resilient in the Western Conference uh, Finals and the, and the semifinals and the first round coming back from a three-one deficit, 
a lot of that just has to do with the buy-in that Michael Malone had with his players, how he was able to motivate them, uh, his message about just taking it one game at a time, how he kept them believing. Uh, I think a lot of that had to do with him. And obviously thinking about where he started, he, he came in a, as a young coach. That's what a lot of people forget about Michael Malone. He kind of had that retread label because he was with the Kings, but he was a young coach in his second job ever. And he took over a really young team. And I think just from the start, he kind of hit it off with a lot of the core players. And you saw that translate to just a lot of trust and a lot of buy-in uh, where they were now in this latest playoff run. I was rereading some of the details of Malone and Sacramento parting ways. Um, you know, I, I remembered that they were like close to 500 early in the season and Boogie was sick. And, you know, they inexplicably made that decision. I kind of forgot about the part where, you know, Vivek and ownership wanted them to move the ball like the Spurs, and they had DeMarcus Cousins. Like, their their whole strength was, like, pounded inside to Goliath, and they were trying to play the beautiful game. So, yeah, I mean, that was absolutely baffling. I think the Nuggets, you know, got pretty lucky there and, and just kind of pounced on a guy who, who got a raw deal. Um, you know, that, that Nuggets rebuild – was down to the studs. I mean, I was looking at that yeah. roster his first season there. I mean, they had Moutier. Like, that was the guy they were putting on the banners then. I guess Jokic was a rookie. You, were, I think, were one of the few people who stuck around from covering that first year. I was not even covering the team at that time. What do you just remember about those, uh, those dark days? Well, it's so fascinating because when the Nuggets hired Michael Malone, Everybody talked about him like he was this uh, pure defensive coach who walked the ball up the floor. And in Denver, the biggest criticism of Brian Shaw, who was the coach before Michael Malone, was that he played too slow. And in Denver, you have to you know, play super fast and race the ball up and down the court and take advantage of the out altitude. And at Michael Malone's introductory press conference, it, it literally, if you go back and watch the video, it couldn't have been more than, you know, the third or fourth sentence out of his mouth. He said, like, don't paint me into the corner um, of being a coach who walks the ball up. I play to the strength of my roster. So he was, like, very aware of, like, all, all the narratives that surrounded him in Sacramento. Uh, but he always said he was going to play to the strength of his players. And um, it, it was definitely, like, a rocky first year or so but I mean we all know the date December 15th um, after he hit that point in his second year and, and established Nikol Jokic as the starting center and kind of everybody saw uh, by that point what he was capable of and that's how the Nuggets kind of needed to uh, they needed to revolve their entire scheme around him that's when things definitely started to change but um, I mean, he inherited, like you said, Christian, just a, a bottom of the barrel roster with, you know, some intriguing young parts, but um, definitely nothing like the coach will inherit in New Orleans. That's for sure. I've always felt like uh, it's easy to forget that not all great players or really good players work together. And I think that Yusuf Nurkic and Nikola Jokic trying to play in the same uh, lineup 
is such a great example of that. These are both really good players. They sent Nurkic to Portland, and he's you know he had that nasty injury, but he's been really good. And the second he got out of the lineup in Denver, you, you were able to take advantage of Jokic in the way you need to. And both of those guys are infinitely better apart than they were together. Uh, I, just, yeah. I think that's a really interesting kind of uh, dynamic of how roster building works. Well, it, oh. it, was a tough, it was a tough situation because you had Nurkic, who you invested a lottery pick in, and you have Jokic, who you took just on a whim in the second round. And uh, you had to see if it was going to work together. And, um, and I mean, it was a failure, but, like, it, it wasn't a absolute complete disaster. Like, there were some rays that there could be something there. But, um, I, I mean, eventually, like, you, ha- you had to make it a choice. But, yeah, it, it was fascinating. You know, when I just look at, you know, qualities – as far as you know, being important to, to modern day coaching, I think it's not so much about X's and O's. I think X's and O's have, have never been less important. I mean, of course, you know, you love to have like a great ATO uh, in the playoffs or whatever, but I think two of the biggest qualities, you know, I'm looking for in a successful coach today. Number one, is he willing to be flexible and play to the strengths of, of the roster? And Malone clearly did that after trying that big ball experiment that you talked about, Jeff, that, that just failed, and he really adapted on the fly. And number two is something I heard J.J. Redick talk about. Um, it's basically guys who can establish accountability without being, the word he used was authoritarian. I think it's a really delicate balance of like being demanding, but not pushing your guys so hard that they tune you out. And I think Michael Malone is one of the best in the league at that. I mean, he coaches his guys hard, but at the same time, I feel like he knows when to let up. What do you think about just striking the right balance between those two things, Harrison? Yeah, um, I I think it's tough, but having a young coachable team, I think definitely helps. Like he inherited uh, Nikola Jokic, obviously, who's, probably you know one of the more coachable superstars in the league and everybody talks about how a roster takes on you know the the identity of your star player that definitely filtered down to everybody else and then you had Jamal Murray a guy who loves to be coached who, who loves to be coached hard and you know loves to get the best demanded from him um so that certainly helped but you you're right you do have to strike the balance and I go back to little things like, you know, Malone, he even went to Bosnia to like hang out with Yusef Nurkic after his rookie season, or he, he goes to Serbia to hang with Nikola Jokic in the summer. Just little things like that kind of help the other side of that. I remember, you know, Malone talked about that, you know, one of the ways that you can coach your players really hard is they just have to know you care about them. And I think that was something that he got from Greg Popovich and that Greg Popovich was really good at. Like, yeah, Greg Popovich would rip you, but I felt like a lot of those guys genuinely felt like he cared about them as people. And I think, you know, that's something that Malone is really good at. And it's, it's just, it's just difficult to do. I mean, it, it, I think it takes a special talent. I mean, I think, you know, that's one reason why Ty Lue is, you know, attractive candidate on the market is that, like, he was a guy who was able to go into Cleveland, his first head coaching job, and, like, hold LeBron James accountable. And LeBron, you know, didn't sit there and laughed in his face. 
I just don't think there are that many guys who, who can do that. It's easy to do in theory, but, but hard to pull off. Yeah, and I think Malone's background helps. Um, you know, what Everybody always talks about his relationship with Cousins, but everybody is like, he's, you know, the Cousins whisperer. He's the only coach to ever get through to DeMarcus Cousins. And I, I don't know, like, I, I mean, I, I think that is true. Um, but you also look about, like, around his background, like growing up in the game as the son of a coach, coming up with the Knicks. Uh, he, he coached LeBron, obviously, as an assistant. He coached Chris Paul. He coached the Warriors. So he knew how to kind of um, – he, he knew how to coach and uh, foster, like, superstar talents as well. Um, but coaching young guys is tough, especially in this day and age um, with the way kind of a lot of young guys get handed everything, the keys to the franchise from an early age. It's um it's it's almost like a totally different ball game than coaching Steph and Clay or or LeBron or CP3. Um, one of the things for me in terms of the as I watched this playoff run this year and you see the Nuggets get is down three one they come back they get to the Western Conference Finals I feel like they're in a very similar situation to the Celtics who you know they go to the Eastern Conference Finals and they lose two of the last three years and. Is it possible to win a title with homegrown talent? And that's the question because every year it seems like there's a new team. Next year's going to be the Nets where it just comes out of nowhere and you're a team that did it the right way and you just can't get over the hump. Is that a concern for the Nuggets? Like after a while, you kind of it starts to feel like, okay, we need to do something. How many times can you run into that wall? Yeah, um, it's it's been a question I've I've thought about for for years. Um, I mean, to do it, if the Nuggets are going to do it, and I think they will try to do it with homegrown talent. I don't think they're going to try to go out and make like a huge franchise altering trade um, with any of their three key guys. If you are going to do it, you need absolute alignment from coach to management to ownership. And um, the Cronkies, like, don't get a lot of cre credit around Denver, and they're really hated here on a number of levels from just the fan base. Um, but Josh Cronkies alignment with the Nuggets management, with Michael Malone, and the patience and the runway that he's given the Nuggets is really the only reason that they've been able to kind of uh, not skip steps, as we like to say here in Denver, and, and just have this patient approach of roster building and, you know, not trading Jamal Murray for one year of Anthony Davis or one year of Kawhi Leonard, which they could have done. Um, they're, they've really only been able to do that because Josh Kroenke has given them such a long runway. I mean, he could have said like, yes, we need to win. We need to put butts in the seats. We um, absolutely you know need to trade Jamal Murray and Gary Harris for a more recognizable superstar that, is going to bring fans to games, but he didn't. They've always had the long view in mind, and that's really a, a key reason why the Nuggets have been able to be so patient and prudent in their approach. So there has to be absolute alignment if you're going to try it. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you can win a championship, like not skipping steps and just building your homegrown talent because so many things have to go right. Like I think a big reason why the Nuggets will have a chance to is because 
they've got Michael Porter Jr. on a rookie deal right now, and they've got their two superstars on max deals. And they're looking to pay Jeremy Grant. They, they have a little more money to spend. So uh, they're like kind of in that sweet spot where the Warriors were, that where they got Steph on a kind of cheap deal when the cap was jumping up. Like you need things to go absolutely right. Um, so I, I think the Nuggets definitely have a chance to. But it's so tough. You, you need a lot of things to go right with how you built your roster, like where guys are in their contracts. But you absolutely need everybody from ownership to the front office to coaching to be all on the same track and to be all aligned and to know that you have that that runway. Yeah, that Warriors team is one that comes to mind where, you know, they went all the way with mostly homegrown talent. I mean, the, uh, the Andre Iguodala signing was obviously huge for them. It's pretty funny looking back in the Warriors and Nuggets history. Uh, you know, the Warriors knocked the Nuggets out of the playoffs when Iguodala's last season in Denver, and then he jumped over. He's known as the uh, the mole in Denver, by the way, for our <laughs> New Orleans listeners. Um, but Harrison, you talked about um, patience a little bit, and you know, I think that element has been, you know, so crucial to to what they've built in Denver. Um, you know, I think you know, medium and small market teams they they don't often have the luxury of just like shaking it up all the time. Like you, you just kind of have to pick your guy and, and believe in him to some degree. I mean, the Nuggets didn't even make the playoffs in their first three years under Michael Malone. And I remember after that third year, even though there's growth every year, there, there were some questions. But when I look at kind of the totality of what they built, it is incredible how far they've come. I've, uh, I brought this up to you before Harrison, but I went back and read this interview Michael Malone did with Zach Lowe and Grantland. It was like weeks after uh, he first got hired in Denver. And this was the first question. I'll read it verbatim. So to give you guys some idea of the situation that Malone stepped into. Um, and really, you know, this is something that, that kind of in my mind showed me like how attractive this Pelican situation is, even though we are in a small market. Uh, Zach asked Malone the first question. You left one weird situation in Sacramento for one in Denver, a team that canceled shoot-arounds because too many players like to party. Did you do some due diligence and have any second thoughts about what you were getting into? That's insane. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Michael Malone had it, had his pick of jobs, and there's there's only 30 NBA jobs, uh, you know. But he, 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 he was coming into, uh, into just a super tore-down team, and – um, Kevin Arnovitz, I don't know if you remember this, uh, Christian, but Kevin Arnovitz wrote this scathing review of the Nuggets front office. Uh, it, it was right around the time Brian Shaw was fired in uh, 2014. And it was just like, Tim Connolly doesn't know how to do his job. Um, like Every time the Nuggets call up a team for like a trade, the other team laughs them off the phone. Like they don't know how to make trades in the NBA. Um, it was just like this scathing review and like, yeah, Tim, Tim Connolly's uh, tenure in Denver got off to a super rough start those first two years with Brian Shaw, but you know, he eventually learned on the job and, and found his footing. And it just kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, that if you don't have patience and, um, and you believe in your guy, but you're not willing to let him make mistakes, um, you're screwed. You're screwed, especially if you're in this situation like uh, small to mid markets are, like Denver, like New Orleans is. I also one of the criticisms I've, I've heard of Dell Demps is, uh, or the draft where the 
Pelicans ended up with Buddy Heald and then traded him for DeMarcus Cousins is like, oh, we could have had Jamal Murray here. Mm-hmm. And it's it's always funny to me because the idea that the Pelicans could have Jamal Murray right now, it doesn't make sense because if they had drafted Jamal Murray, he would have ended up in Sacramento. Uh, like they would have still made that trade for for DeMarcus mm-hmm. Cousins. So if anyone's mad that they don't have Jamal Murray, it should be the Kings. Um, but like I think that's the type of thing that you can't control as the as the Nuggets and what do you think in terms of their development has been the biggest piece? Has it been Jamal Murray or has it been Jokic? Well, it's been Jokic. I mean, Jokic has been, he has set the tone for what they've done on offense. And the Nuggets, I actually think they've gone away from this a little bit with Jamal Murray's rise. But the Nuggets were the ultimate, like, unselfish, equal opportunity, beautiful ball movement. Um, offense and that really started with Jokic who's like the most unselfish superstar in in league history you know he he doesn't want to (laughs) score he actually would rather assist than score a basket I mean he he said that multiple times Um, so it it started with him and uh, you know it's funny like Jamal was I don't want to say a late arriver but this team was definitely on the upswing before Jamal Murray kind of found his foothold as that second franchise cornerstone. I mean, it was like the Nico Jokic, Gary Harris show for a minute. Like Gary Harris was this team's <laughs> second best player like two years ago. And it's crazy to say, but you know, in like 2017, uh, 2018, that was the thinking at least coming into that year. Um, so it started with Jokic for sure. Definitely the offensive identity of this team is totally tailored around Jokic. Um, It's his style. A a lot of the sets Denver runs are obviously catered to him. But, you know, they definitely took another step when Jamal Murray kind of rose to power. And um, it's so interesting because as Jamal Murray um, kind of ascended and as a couple players around him, like, Will Barton and uh, and Paul Millsap came here. Denver kind of went away from this beautiful, like free flowing ball movement style, and now it's really the Murray Jokic two man game. And uh, it's just kind of an interesting, um, it's just an interesting path and an interesting trajectory they followed. And I think it's kind of natural to an extent when you have just two stars as good as Jokic and Jamal Murray are. Things are kind of going to recenter around them. Um, but it definitely started with Jokic. Yeah, Jamal was one of the most fun players to watch in the playoffs. Um, I mean, just the tough shot making, you know, obviously I knew he had that in his arsenal. I didn't know he could be that consistent with it on, on this big of stage. I mean, it was pretty remarkable. Um I think the passing has and his playmaking ability has also improved a lot. I mean, there's one of those games against the Lakers, uh, one of their wins, where uh, he had 12 assists, I think, in that game. Um, I think he might have led the Nuggets in assists in the playoffs. I would have to look that up. But, you know, he's been pretty adamant since day one that he is a point guard. Um, and I think he kind of proved it here in this playoffs. Um, you know, Jamal and Brandon Ingram are very different players, but... I do see some parallels between, you know, the situation with Jamal last year and kind of what the Pelicans are going through with Brandon Ingram this year. You know, both have put up really impressive numbers at a young age. I think Jamal has contributed to winning a little bit more. And they're 
you know, Jamal got paid on his ability of, well, here's what I think you can do in the future. And I think Brandon Ingram is about to get that same deal. I mean, I think when, Mm -hmm. you know, this deal for Ingram comes out, it's going to be pretty close to a max contract, if not the full max. And there's going to be a lot of questions. Well, is he worth it? I mean, he had, you know, the numbers were crazy and he improved, but like how much does he, you know, contribute to winning? And I think one reason why the the Pelicans feel good about giving him all that money is a reason the Nuggets felt good about paying Jamal Murray. He's obsessed with basketball. Um, you know, Jamal's a guy who's always in the gym, you know, similar to Brandon. And, you know, at, at some point, you're just kind of betting on these guys. And I feel like if you are having the bet, you know, I feel better about the guys who are just going to be obsessed and, and really have basketball as the main things in their lives. Yeah, I think it's a good comparison. Um especially when, when you think about where kind of both franchises are. Like, I, I know the Pelicans obviously didn't draft Brandon Ingram, but they kind of inherited him. And it's obviously uh, he's a near max to, to max level guy. And I, I don't know if this is the case for New Orleans, but if you're the Nuggets, you c- just can't mess it up with those guys. Where the Nuggets are at as a franchise um, – They've obviously been an afterthought with free agents kind of before, uh, I think, the last year. But you just can't mess it up with those guys. You can't have a Gordon Hayward situation where um, you like don't you, you piss him off a little with whatever you might offer him or whatever you might not offer him, and that comes back to bite you. Like That could be a crippling move for a franchise like Denver. So they saw what they had in Jamal Murray. Um they saw kind of the trajectory he could have going forward. They believed in him. They believed in his work ethic, like you said, Christian. Um, he obviously checked a number of boxes from like a high character standpoint, uh, a guy they wanted to continue to build around, a good locker room guy, uh, a guy they could see being like a vocal leader for them one day, which he's growing into it, and the guy who could play off of Jokic. And sure enough, they have you know one of the best two man duos in the league now between them two, um, but. Then the Nuggets kind of, I don't want to say they got killed for giving him the max contract on the first day of free agency, like literally 12.01 a.m. on the first day of free agency, they just handed him a max contract. They didn't get killed for it, but there was definitely a lot of questioning, like, is Jamal Murray a max player? You know, should they negotiated, should they have negotiated that down a little bit? But I think from Denver's perspective, it was just like, we have this guy, we can't mess this up, we want him here. You know, for the next four years, and they got him on a five-year deal, deal too, which they also got Jokic on, which I think is significant. Um, kind of pushing back that eventual free agency, you know, for a year. Um, I think that's how Denver approached it. They were just like, "We've got to lock this guy up." I mean, we're the Nuggets. We just kind of got to. The funny thing is, you could have gone with Gordon Hayward or Kemba Walker on that example, and they both went to Boston. So maybe that's that's what they need to avoid is <laughs> losing Jamal Murray to Boston. Um, Kind of just building on my question from earlier, what do you think that they stay pat? Is there an area that you think the Nuggets need to attack to really be a contender? Are they a contender now, or is there just somewhere that they need to improve? Because that's where a lot of teams, I feel like, you know, you look at the Heat. Are the Heat going to be competitive in this series with the Lakers? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not anticipating it, but I never want to doubt Jimmy Jimmy Butler. I didn't have a lot of faith in the Celtics. I didn't have a lot of faith in any team really going against the Lakers like I didn't against the Warriors a few for the last few years. Mm-hmm. So where is that kind of next step? 
Uh, it's interesting. I, I think I, I don't believe Denver's going to move any of their core three. And um, it, it's funny, Christian knows this well, but in Denver around this team, we've always like struggled to identify who is like the core. Is it Gary Harris, who seemed like he was going to be in the core a couple of years ago? Will Barton was a name that was floated in the core. Now the core is defined. It's clearly Murray, Jokic, and Michael Porter Jr. And I don't think the Nuggets are going to move any of those three guys. Uh, that's their core. Um, they're probably going to re-sign Jeremy Grant unless he just gets like an absolute insane deal somewhere else, which I don't really envision happening. So they're going to bring back those four. Um, and then it's about putting the right pieces around him. Um, so I, I don't think any of those guys are going to be um, moved, but I think they'll definitely look to upgrade the roster, whether that's a Drew Holiday, who right. I know they have interest in and who would be just a great fit alongside those four. He feels um, like he'd be the right fit on like seven different teams that aren't the Pelicans. <laughs> like <laughs> all these teams that are like right there and just need that like that Marcus Smart piece, you know, like he's a similar player where that's like the one thing like the Blazers are missing is perimeter defense. And uh, yeah, I think that's where I was going with that is, is that's going to be a really interesting piece for the Pelicans this offseason is who comes calling for Drew Holiday and are they willing to, to part with him? Yeah. So I, I don't think Jokic, Murray, or Porter are, are getting moved, obviously, but you know they'll definitely look to upgrade, and I think Holiday is the, the logical piece. I don't want your Gary Harris poo-poo platter. I'm sorry. Do you want me to talk you into Gary Harris on this <laughs> podcast right now? Because I, I, I won't be talked into it. We're not going down that road. Uh, let's talk about the, the, Kel- the Pelicans' coaching vacancy. Um, David Griffin has said he thinks it's the most attractive job in the NBA, which – if you're hiring for this job, is a thing you should say. Um, I think it is a really attractive opening. I think the problem is that this is just a really tough year to be hiring for a pretty good opening because there are a lot of really good openings. Um, Right now, there's six openings across the league. I mean, the Clippers, I mean, immediately a a title favorite with the right coach. The Rockets, the Pacers, the Thunder, the 76ers – it's just it's just a tough year to be in the market for a head coach. Um, you know, when I look at this vacancy in in New Orleans, um, if I had to pick like the three favorites uh, right now, just on, based on everything that's been reported and, and kind of the little things you hear, um, I would say probably Doc, Ty Lue, and Kenny Atkinson. Then I would put the field after them. Um, of those three, you know. If you guys were in charge of this coaching search, do you, do you feel any which way? I mean, is there any anyone you like of those three for this job here? Um, is it bad to say I don't like any of the three that much? Wow. <laughs> um, yes, if it I is. Had, if I had to pick one of those three, I'd probably pick Ty Lue. Uh, you've got the David Griffin connection. You've got the championship pedigree. Um but I'm all about finding the next Nick Nurse, guys. I'm all about finding <laughs> the next Nick Nurse um, or Taylor Jenkins or a guy of that realm. Um, I'm not a, a, all about the retreads. But if I had to pick one of those guys, I, I would I, I would side with Ty Lue. Um, yeah, kind, kind of for those reasons I laid out. Yeah, so Doc Rivers is interesting to me because I felt for a while like Doc Rivers is, is – 
just kind of burnt out. Like, he's been coaching forever. He's been on the Clippers forever, and he's been on this, like, the cusp of getting there and never has. Uh, and especially in the bubble, he just didn't seem like he wanted to be there. I think a lot of guys didn't want to be there by the end. Uh, the Clippers specifically, you know, you wonder how, how do they put up a dud in that game, game seven like that. To me, it looked like they were tired of being in the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> they they were okay with losing that game. Paul George was okay with losing that game. And when you're when you lose that edge, it becomes very obvious. I guess when you're playing a team that has not. And to me, that was the vibes I got from the Clippers through that entire that entire series after they got up three one. Um, and it's really not that hard to understand. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if Doc Rivers doesn't coach this year. Period. That's kind of where I'm going with that. Is he's he's perfectly fine with what he's accomplished in his career that he would he, kind of like Gentry is in the same boat where you know he could probably get a coaching job if he wanted one but I wouldn't be surprised to see him just chill especially because Gentry's going to make five million dollars if he sits on his couch um but with all that said I mean I think Doc Rivers is is the guy you'd want yeah I mean the Pelicans as much as they want a developer or like a like a coach like Kenny Atkinson who has this track record of developing talent I think when you're a small market, you kind of want that big name to bring to to help guys understand what it's like to play in prime time. You know what I mean? Like a guy like Kenny Atkinson, from a basketball perspective, might be the choice, but I don't know if he's the one you want to to lead this team into relevance, which is kind of an an unspoken part of what you want out of that head coach. Um, Alvin Gentry as as much as good as he was in dealing with the media, he never really, he never really elevated the presence of the team, um, which I think is something you need in, in a small market. I think if I had my pick of this trio, I would go with Ty Lue. Um, I know it's really difficult to evaluate guys who've only coached LeBron James. I mean, it's just it's just a strange, unique circumstance, and LeBron does wield a lot of power, but I think clearly. Ty has shown that that he's a guy who star players will listen to. I mean, I think, you know, probably, honestly, the most important thing about this hire is can you connect with Zion Williamson? And I feel like Ty Lue is a guy who I could say with some confidence uh, the answer is probably yes. Um, people really praise Ty's X's and O's in the playoffs. Uh, Kevin Love has gone out of his way to say that, you know, Ty was – a better tactician in the postseason than he was in the regular season. Everything I hear about Ty is just good. I, I want to just see a little bit more. I mean, I don't even, I don't know. I almost don't feel like he's a retread. I mean, I know, I guess he was a head coach for three years, but it was such a unique situation, and he's still so young. Um, I would love to see him here. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I think, you know, he can go to a, a situation where they're more ready to compete for championships right now. Um, and I don't blame that for it all. I mean, he's already won a championship. That's that's probably what I would do, too, if I was in his situation. Um, I would feel pretty good about Kenny Atkinson. I mean, there there are questions about, you know, can you connect with star players? Um, you know, obviously it didn't work out with him and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. That doesn't mean it couldn't work out for him here uh, in New Orleans with Zion and Brandon Ingram. Um, and Doc Rivers is really interesting. I, I did a deep dive on this one this morning. I mean, if you just look at the resume, um, it's, it's you know, the best resume of, of any coach on the market. I mean, he's been a head coach for 21 seasons. Uh, he's had 17 winning seasons. 
you know, the interesting thing I think is that almost all of his winning has come with established talent. Like he's never really taken, um, you know, chicken shit for lack of a better term and, and turned it into chicken salad. I mean, I guess you could say disgusting. the last year's Clippers team, but I like, I has anybody know. ever turned chicken shit? Is it chicken shit into chicken salad? <laughs> that sounds like a negative trait. Kenny Atkinson did that in Brooklyn. Yeah, he and did. look what happened. Um, I do think it's funny that two of the coaches on this list presided over the collapse for against a team that uh, Harrison covers, <laughs> and yet those are the two of the prime candidates. Uh, I, I do enjoy that kind of uh, that aspect of all of this. I, I think, Jeff, what you brought up is like a valid question. Like, is Doc just burnt out? I mean, there have already been like the tweets like, oh, Doc would be great on TV. I mean, he's just he's just been in coaching for more than two decades. He's already won a championship. And he hasn't been able to talk for 90% of that time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think Doc. Doc's probably heading for a year off. I mean, if this if there was a year to take a year off, this is the year to take the, the year off, right? Like, who even knows what next season is going to look like? That seems stressful just thinking about it uh, from a head coaching perspective. I, I don't know how Doc would feel about, like, have, having to go through the ups and downs of a kind of fringe playoff team like the Pelicans are going to be. Um I don't know. I feel like if he's going to take a job, it, it's got to be you know, with a team that's definitely going to be in the playoffs and is going to be like a surefire contender. Um, Ty Lue, probably not a retread, like I said earlier. So I'll, I'll probably retract that. Um, still a young head coach, but I still think he's kind of the best candidate for New Orleans. Kenny Atkinson is just totally um, just totally the guy who, who's going to be like, all right, be in at seven. Have your stretching done by 7:20. Uh, get weighed in at 7:25. Have breakfast at 7:30. Like that's that's Kenny Atkinson. So if that's what New Orleans thinks Zion Williamson in that roster needs, uh, I, I think he's your guy for that. I will go through. Okay, so uh, Doc Rivers coached the Magic for a while. He's been coaching for a long time. He's only 58. Uh, he's he started coaching very young with the Magic. He went to the Celtics in 2004-2005. Here's the roster he was looking at. Paul Pierce, obviously. Antoine Walker, who I had a jersey of as a kid. I was a big Antoine Walker fan. Uh, Kendrick Perkins, you know, friend of the friend of the Pelicans, as long as they, you know. Ah, uh, Perk. <laughs> don't Nothing but good things to say about his time in New Orleans. <laughs> I, I le- at least he would endorse that hire, right? <laughs> I think he would. I don't know. I, I, I will not bet on anything Kendrick says because he doesn't know what he's going to say until halfway through the sentence. Uh, Walter McCarty, if you've ever seen uh, a Celtics broadcast, Tommy Heinsohn, uh, Hall of Famer, always yells, I love Walter. That's what he used to yell when he played. <laughs> Al Jefferson, Ricky Davis, Mark Blount, Marcus Banks, Tony Allen, back when Tony Allen was young and not the grandfather. Uh, Rafe LaFrance, Delonte West, who's in the news now for very bizarre reasons um justin reed i I mean this is gary payton was on that team so like he has made the decision to go to a roster that is not you know title ready so if if you want to look at anything but the clippers hire he is willing to take on a project it seems well they won yeah i mean 
I guess not the issue, but like I think the interesting thing about this is they won like twenty four games that year. And like, no, they won forty five games that year. The year before the Celtics won the championship. Oh no! Well, this is two years before. Okay. Yeah, they got worse. They went like forty five, and then and then they won like twenty four. Okay. Good Okay. Yeah, and then they traded. Uh, well, they tr- they drafted Jeff Green and traded him and uh, Wally Zerbiak. <laughs> Uh, I think in another draft pick for Kevin Garnett, and then they got Ray Allen. I can't remember how, and that's that's how they established the the big three there, and they won. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I I uh, went back and listened to part of like the Woj pod where Doc like talked about his first three years in uh, Boston, um, and like he was worried after his third year that that ownership was going to move on from him, and like Danny Ainge basically like stuck his neck out for him and said like I got to get Doc some players, and and Doc is my guy. And they immediately, you know, traded for for Kevin Garnett, uh, Ray Allen, that went from like twenty four to sixty six in the championship or whatever. And Rondo it was. was on that team. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, player development is hard. I mean, I think Harrison, you're right that the Kenny Atkinson would be that guy who's like, you know, in the building at five thirty a.m. like the classic grinder. I mean, I don't know if, if Doc is that guy at, at this stage of his career. I mean, I don't blame it at all. He's already he's already proved a lot. But part of me thinks that. That is kind of what the Pelicans need because, you know, Alvin Gentry, um, it was, you know, the criticism of, of kind of the year here was it was unstructured. It led to undisciplined basketball. Like they turned the ball over all the time. You know, a lot of the young guys didn't, didn't you know, Nikhil Alexander-Walker being one, like didn't show a lot of growth. So part of me does think that, that they do need somebody who, who can, I guess, bring a higher level of accountability. Um, and it's just a difficult thing to do, like we said. I mean, you, you try to be that drill sergeant or whatever, and, and, you know, maybe you're at risk of getting tuned out. But I think Kenny would be a good hire. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the what Brooklyn was be- before they kind of uh, jumped off the deep end with Kyrie and KD, um, like they, they were the, the picture of, like, a rebuild. Like they were rebuilding bliss for, for a while, Um how Kenny Atkinson kind of rebuilt that program and they were all about player development and um, they were all about just like the, the nuances of of like NBA culture. Like that was a a rebuilding culture, like in in the best sense of the word when Kenny Atkinson was there. Um, So yeah, I wouldn't blame New Orleans for thinking, for looking at that and saying, all right, that's exactly what we need. You know, we need that structure. We need somebody to drill into these young guys um, what's important and how to practice and how to act as a professional and how to take care of your body. I wouldn't blame New Orleans for that. Uh, before we get out of here, let's talk a little NBA Finals. Uh, I read a bunch of the previews this morning. I think there are a lot of like fascinating layers to this, you know, how, how much does Miami go to the zone? Uh, Bam on paper looks like a guy who can guard AD, but can he actually do it in practice? Um, do you guys think this is going to be a competitive series? I mean, I think the Lakers are unquestionably the favorite, but like, do you think this thing could go six or seven? I could see it going six. I, I don't see any way the Lakers lose the series. Um, I obviously, obviously, as I've kind of indicated, I, I grew up a Celtics fan, so I was invested in that series. 
they happened to play game six during the Saints game I was, <laughs> I was working. So I literally, I was watching the score, and it was 92-90 Celtics, and I looked back, it was 116-102. I have no idea how they lost, but um, I think the Heat are going to go as far as the shooters take them because they're going to have to shoot. Tyler Hero is going to have to, and Duncan Robinson are going to have to hit shots to give them a chance uh, to win those games. You know, they'll be in them, and they'll play defense. Uh, but that's good. That's the only thing I can see that really can elevate them to more than two, maybe three wins. Um, I just don't see any way LeBron loses this year. He's, he's in the bubble on a mission and he knows that this is the year that he needs to just soundly win a title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was funny in the Nuggets Lakers series, whenever LeBron and Michael Porter Jr. were on the court at the same time, LeBron pretty much just dribbled the ball at the top of the key like literally pointed to his teammate who was being guarded by Michael Porter Jr. And it was like, come up and set a screen for me so we can get this switch. I feel like that's, what's going to happen to Tyler hero and, and, and Duncan Robinson every time they're on the court with him in the finals. So that's going to be a big thing for the heat, but I think that he can push the Lakers. I do. Uh, I, I think they've got the matchups with bam. I think they've got the bodies that they can throw at LeBron and for, for how LeBron kind of extinguished the Nuggets in Game 5, just kind of hitting a bunch of these mid-range shots and jumpers that he didn't hit throughout the first four games right, and did not hit officially. And it, it looked like really throughout those first four games, he did not have a lot of confidence in his jumper. I think the Heat have the bodies to make him shoot enough of those shots as to where the Heat are going to be in this series. I really want to pick the Heat. Like I, I really want to pick the Heat, but I'm I'm just so scared of LeBron and and how locked in he looks right now. Like he just looks like he's on a mission. I mean, it, I I can't believe he's still this good. And there's like the clear physical deterioration. Um, I don't know. I mean, man. one thing to keep in mind too: LeBron has never been this rested going into a finals series. Like if you look back at the Cavs uh, finals trips. By the time he got to the finals, he was on, you know, he was rolling on rims. Like, he was carrying those teams. And, you know, they were going six, seven games. He's won all of his series in five games. They had, like, a three-day hiatus. And this is after three months off for any ailing things. And he's been able to sit back and let AD take the scoring load. Like, he's <laughs> – this is a different LeBron than you're used to seeing in the finals. And I just don't see any way – with him able to just say, see the finish line, <laughs> that you're going to stop him. I, I don't know. This is such a good test for, like, the one team has the best two players and then the other team has, like, the best three through eight players or whatever. And, you know, how much top-end talent in the NBA truly matters. Um, I think the Heat, obviously, one through eight are, are you know, deeper and all that. But I, I just think it's going to come down to, you know, LeBron and AD. I think I'm going to pick the Lakers in seven, but – Man, I, I think the Heat are going to be in it. Um, and I think Bam could get, give AD problems. Like, I think Bam, you know, could be the best AD defender in the entire league. He's a freaking beast. I mean, Bam is the Heat's best player, right? Yeah. I, I don't want to do Jimmy Butler like that. I think Bam has the most upside in terms of what he can do on the court. But Jimmy Butler right now is the best player on that team. He needs to be more aggressive. That's the thing I, I saw in that Celtics series, and Jeff Van Gundy wouldn't shut the hell up about it. Um, 
he likes to sit back and really charge in the fourth quarter and against the LeBron AD, you know, just tower. You're not going to be able to do that. They're going to need to get out ahead in these games and force the Lakers to work. They don't want to get into situations where LeBron is just casually dribbling dribbling it up the floor in the fourth quarter, able to build those 10-point leads down the stretch like he was against the Nuggets. Talk trash to Jimmy Butler, you know, at your own will. I mean, it's just not going to go well for you. I would would never say a bad word about Jimmy Butler, my guy. Tomble, Texas native Jimmy Butler. (laughs) No no mention of any of the Van Gundys for the Pelicans uh, coaching opening, (laughs) guys. Thank God. I, I like Stan. I mean, Stan is fantastic on the broadcast, as you know, Harrison. I'm not a, a huge fan of Jeff on the broadcast, but hey, he might be he might be really good in LA if that's where he ends up going. Oh, well, Mark Jackson threatened to threatened to murder him in the Celtics series. I don't know if y'all picked up on that. <laughs> so hey, I mean, no one talked about Mark Jackson either. We we've just left all the broadcasters out of this conversation. Oh man, this this finals is just gonna be a. It's going to be a, like an interview for the Clippers' job while the game is going on. <laughs> well, Harrison, uh, thanks for stopping by, man. It was fun. Uh, hats off to the Nuggets. Uh, small and medium market franchises. You know, I, I got a root for them. It, w- it was a lot of fun, man. Definitely. Thanks for having me on, guys.